Welcome to the Roboticist Chronicles, an ARC Specialties podcast, where we get into the nuts and bolts of robots, automation, and the implications of an evolving machine workforce. Hey everyone, welcome into this episode of the Roboticist Chronicles. I'm your host today, Tyler Kern, and I'm really excited about today's episode because, as always, we have Dan Alford from Arc Specialties on the podcast. But today we're also welcoming in Josh Sugnanen. He is an aerospace engineer who works for NASA. And so on the podcast today, we're going to talk a little bit about how Josh and Dan's worlds collide a little bit in the world of robotics, some of the things that Josh is working on that he's particularly excited about, and, and some of the differences between how these guys both operate in the robotics space. And so it's going to be a really exciting conversation coming up on the podcast. So without further ado, let's dive on in, and we're just going to jump straight into the conversation with Josh and Dan. So Josh, how did you uh, how did you first find your way into this? Did you always want to work in robotics, and did you always want to work for NASA? Or is this something that, on some level, you just kind of uh, found your way to, or, or was this a goal that you were kind of uh, attain, reaching for and trying to attain over the years? Uh, I would say that like NASA was always on my radar mm-hmm. as a uh, every little kid it, that was into uh, like Legos and building stuff at, at my age wanted to be an astronaut or work for NASA or something like that. But, uh, I wouldn't say that I, I truly believed it was going to happen until I was in college. You know what I mean? Sure. <laughs> sure. what did you, what did you study in college and what kind of things did, did you do that were there that kind of helped prepare you for, for what you do now? I, the things that got me into NASA, none of them happened when I was in college. They all happened when I was in high school. Really? Uh, yeah, wow. I got my first internship at NASA, my first semester as a freshman at Georgia Tech. Wow. I was just able to maintain Mm -hmm. an okay status with NASA so that they would eventually hire me. (laughs) (laughs) So now, now both of you work with high school programs that are kind of advancing robotics with, with high school kids. Uh, Do you find like that that's at least partially due to the fact that that's how you got into what you're doing in the first place was programs in high school, similar to what you work with now? Uh, Definitely. Uh, That was a I would say that's the primary factor when mm-hmm. I, you know, what got that internship was that I was heavily involved with, uh, I was doing first robotics and, uh, best robotics. So best was in, I think it's, uh, Southeast best. It's kind of a smaller competition than first at that time, at least I think it's a lot bigger now, but we did that in the fall and then we did, uh, first in the spring. So that was kind of a year round robotics thing. Plus a bunch of, you know, other normal extracurricular activities, but those are relatively <laughs> new at the time I was there. Right. Dan, what, what kind of motivated you to, to jump in and be a part of this as well? You guys are in, uh, working with us first, is that right? And Texas best robotics for high schoolers. So exactly the same two things Josh is doing, but you know, when I was a kid, I didn't have an outlet for uh, what I wanted to do. So I was just a strange kid that built stuff and, and this, <laughs> all these robotic competitions kind of legitimize that and give the kids an outlet. And that's why I support him. I've been mentoring teams since the early 2000s. And Josh isn't the first U.S. first alumni that I've ended up seeing work professionally in the field. Right, right. So you guys also, in addition to to doing this work with high schoolers, you guys uh, race mountain bikes and race race cars and, and that sort of thing. How the heck did that end up happening, Josh? You know, how did you get introduced to Dan and start racing cars and that sort of thing? Uh, I was always into cars, and uh, as soon as I started making enough money to do anything fun with cars, and 
started doing uh, uh, track days. Yeah. Um, before that, I would I would do go karting, and when I was in college, I was on uh, Formula SAE, uh, which is um, college race car program. You build a, a, a Formula style car, open wheel, uh, essentially from scratch, and analyze it, and then you re- compete against all the other universities world, around the world. Uh, and there's a bunch of different competitions for that um, that travel. So I had the bug. It was when you have a paycheck to fund your bug, you know, uh, that you really get into it. But I was lucky that when I got hired at NASA full-time, one of my coworkers uh, was also really into the car stuff um, and doing track days and racing. And uh, he kind of tricked me, I would say, um, into going to the track one day, getting a ride in his car. And it just spiraled out of control after that. (laughs) And then that guy knows Dan. Uh, so that's how that connection got made. Ah, okay. Yeah, yeah. So then did you guys race together? Were you on a similar team or were you in competition with one another? How did that work out? Uh, I would say it all started out with everybody supporting Dan. Um, Dan was the primary driver for a number of years. It was mm-hmm. all crew uh, for Dan. And then I was learning how to drive, um, which is kind of, you learn how to drive when you're 16. Uh, then you kind of learn how to uh, you learn how to drive again when you start doing track day stuff, and it's kind of the same experience. So that takes a few years to really nail nail down all those new skills. Right. Uh, and then I, you, know, you build that, and then I started driving. Uh, at the time, I could that, there was no way I could afford a car to actually race in. Um, and uh, but luckily, I knew Dan, and Dan had two cars, and one of them wasn't doing anything. <laughs> so he offered it to me to do my competition school which is your, your licensing event. Sure. Um, so you do a certain number of, of events to train um, and build your skills. Then you do this licensing event. Uh, I borrowed Dan's car for that. And then that weekend, we, if you pass your licensing exam, you get to race with all the other racers that weekend. Um, and we had, a, I think I did my first race and didn't finish last, which was amazing. <laughs> uh, and then in the second race, the car had been giving us a lot of trouble for a few months uh, with some crazy electrical issues that we couldn't really figure out. Long story short, uh, car caught a fire uh, and burned, burned pretty good in my second race. <laughs> <laughs> so, so you blew up Dan's car in second second race. Uh, yeah, yeah, that's correct. <laughs> that wa- that w- also is not the last time that I've blown that car up. <laughs> he, he, no, to be clear, he blew it up and then burnt it. So, <laughs> yes, both happened. So it had no the engine, the drivetrain was trash, and then it caught on fire, which made the rest of the car trash. <laughs> So it's it's not an exaggeration to say that if it if it moves and if it goes, you have at least some interest in it, right? You know, be it race cars, uh, I think mountain bikes is something else that you guys have mentioned uh, in the past, yep. and then robotics and and working with NASA and that sort of thing. Yeah, that's definitely true. <laughs> that's that's really interesting. So, Josh, tell me a little bit more uh, about yourself when it comes to like family history and that sort of thing. Dan has alluded to in the past that uh, that your family history is a little bit interesting just in terms of how you have, you know, reached a point where you're now a, a NASA engineer um just given your background. Tell me a little bit more about that. Yeah, it's kind of a kind of a crazy story, I guess. I'm a first generation uh American born in the United States. Uh my parents are from uh, South America, on the north coast of South America, there's a small Caribbean country called Guyana. Mm-hmm. Um, used to be called British Guyana. They were born there. Their their parents were born there. And at some point before that, they were my family was from India, uh, and they were brought to Guyana by the British uh, to farm and and you know seeking a better life out of India. They ended up in South America, 
as farmers uh, for a long time and then seeking a better life from South America, they ended up in New York City. Uh, my, both my parents moved to New York City when they were pretty young, basically grew up in the States and first, for, first folks to, of that generation really to get a college education. And I think education was really important to them. So then I had a, a hammered in education. <laughs> and then, uh, you know, race cars, NASA, destroy race cars, build more race cars. <laughs> the whole the whole nine yards at that point. Yeah. <laughs> so as as you and Dan have known each other for, you know, for a number of years now and, and gotten to know one another and obviously have some some common interests, be it race cars or robots, um, have there been any points of contention? I know that maybe you and Dan differ in opinion when it comes to autonomous versus teleoperated robots. So, uh, Josh, explain your point of view on this and uh, maybe tell Dan where he's wrong. Uh, I think Dan is of the opinion that if uh, you have to interface with a, machine, a robot at all, it's not considered autonomous. Whereas in in the space industry, our robots are, do what essentially what we call supervised autonomy, where you have to give them kind of a high level task or a waypoint or something to work towards so that they can do their job safely, um, you know, with some level of, of oversight to make sure that we're not going to take one of these massive manipulators on the outside of the space station and poke a hole in it or something crazy <laughs> like that, you know. But in between those two, you know, the, the, the two waypoints that a, a human will set, uh, usually on Earth, the in-between part, you know, is is, is uh, done by that machine usually. So Dan's Dan's contention would be that he programs the robot and then it does its thing, you know, having sensors and, and kind of having that ability to to sense touch and, and and know parameters and things like that. So he would say that's autonomous and that what you're doing is a is a joystick of sorts, you know, and, and that kind of thing. Uh, is Dan wrong about what autonomous actually means? Uh, I think I think I'm being baited here. <laughs> uh, I yeah, I, I think a, a script is not really truly an autonomous system. You know, if you hmm. if the thing can only really do one thing all the time, it's not making its own decisions really. So Dan, what's your uh? What's your rebuttal to, to Josh's claim then that uh, that if it has parameters and it you know it, it goes from point A to point B and it knows that that's what it's going to do that it's not autonomous? Well, uh, to me, the definition of a robot is multi-axis, programmable, and autonomous, and and that's what the features are that we capitalize on automation in industry because you want the machine to run by itself. You probably wouldn't buy a washing machine from me if you had to keep pushing the button to progress through the cycle, now would you? Now that that would be an, a human operated machine. So we're looking for autonomy where the robot will do the same thing over and over. And what we're adding to that now is some intelligence and some sensor systems. So now the robot has a sense of touch, it has vision, it has all these different things. So it not only can repeat a repetitious task, but it can adapt to its environment, it can adapt to its parts, and then uh, do something that it wasn't originally programmed to do. Actually, Josh and I aren't that different. You know, he, he started out with uh, what I refer to as a glorified backhoe, which is nothing but a joystick operated device where the human did all the work. And now he's adding autonomy to that. And we're taking something that repeated a similar pattern over and over and adding autonomy to that. 
So Josh, tell me a little bit more about adding autonomy to some of the things that, that you've worked with for a long time, as Dan referred to it, a, uh, a glorified backhoe of sorts. But no, uh, you know, t- tell me a little bit more about that process of adding autonomy to some of the uh, some of the devices that you have and some of the things that you work with with NASA. Yeah, what we found is that you can't trust people to operate things with joysticks, really. <laughs> um, pretty much you put, just like with racing, you put a joystick in somebody's hand and they're going to try to figure out how fast that thing goes, right? Uh, sure. That's the limits of whatever is going to happen. I'm not saying people actually do that, but... <laughs> if if my video game abilities are any indication, I'm really bad at anything <laughs> that involves joysticks. So I, I, I know yeah. what you mean. Yeah. Also, an- another aspect of that is that uh, human time is, is very expensive. Um, and you don't need to be paying, you know, supporting people, a team of people that move joints on a robot um, when, when a, a computer can do that just as effectively, right? Mm-hmm. The, part, the parts that we're having trouble that are more expensive for a robot to do right now are, uh, are, are planning what their high-level task is going to be. Right. right. That's, that's very difficult. And we're coming now into a phase of technology where that some machines are able to decide on what their high level tasks are going to be. Um, but really that that's pretty young technology. So that is where our, the human factor comes to this level of robotics. Um, so for example, we have these robots on the ISS Canada arm two, which is the really big manipulator that they use for docking and berthing. A lot of those operations, um, will be controlled by a person because they are highly critical mm-hmm. uh, operations, you know. Um, and those, a lot of times those will be local operations. So somebody on the space station will make sure that everything is going according to plan there. Uh, but if you're just trying to do like a huge traverse, you, you, we don't need a person to necessarily move all these joints exactly individually, right? So we can automate a lot of those tasks. Right. Uh, just trying to get the robot from point A to point B. So... Are, are there unique challenges to working with robots in space? You know, like a part of the thing that I, I always wonder about is the delay between you telling the robot to do something and then it doing it. So is that a particular challenge that you have to deal with when you have human operated uh, functions and that sort of thing? That is a massive challenge. Yeah. The, you know, robots in general are hard. Anybody that has, is getting into robotics, uh, the problem that you're trying to get into is always harder than you have scoped it to be. Um, and that's when the robot is in front of you on your lab bench, right? You put the robot 200 miles above your head orbiting the earth or <laughs> even more difficult on the moon or uh, on Mars or a probe that's doing deep space research or something like that. The delays are, are unbelievable, right? So if you're talking about a, a, a robot like Curiosity or uh, any of our other Mars rovers, for example, the delay is minutes, right? So you can't count on somebody watching that thing and uh, controlling it real time. That's, uh, technically impossible right now. Um, hmm. so yeah, I, I, and our communication travels at the speed of light. <laughs> and as far as we know, nothing travels faster than that. That is fa- as fast as that can go at the current, uh, state of technology. So you would tell the robot, Hey, move uh, a little bit to the left and then go get a cup of coffee, you know, respond to some emails, come back. And then it maybe it, it, maybe it's moved at that point. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> uh, another issue that we deal with pretty regularly is loss of signal. So you're trying to control these robots that are really far away. Sometimes the orbits and stuff work out to where you do not have confidence to that machine. Luckily, we can predict all of that so you know when it's coming. So you have your machine and stuff in a safe pose or state while the signal is going to go down. But it'll go down for 30 seconds. Sometimes it'll go down for 45 minutes. Mm -hmm. 
and you just, you have no contact with that machine for that amount of time, you know? Wow. So is that kind of driving some of the, some of the interest, I suppose, in autonomy and in adding sensors and, and cameras and things like that, that can ensure that the robot has a little bit more autonomy as opposed to, you know, because if there is signal loss, if there is, you know, that delay between the human operating it and the machine responding, does that mean then that NASA is particularly interested in having more autonomy with their robots? Yeah, definitely. That's a, a huge factor for further automating these systems. Hmm. You know, kind of with the future of what we're talking about uh, in NASA's mission these days is the Artemis program, right? Which for long periods of time, well, there won't be any people on the surface of wherever wherever we're going to set up our base, largely going to be maintained by machines while people are not there. Wow. Um, so autonomy is a huge factor in, in those kinds of decisions. Interesting. So. Dan, how do you see what Josh is working on with NASA and what you're working on with industrial robotics and, and everything that you do? How do you see those paths converging and you guys having similar similar projects or similar um, similar things that you're looking to do in the future as robotics moves forward? How, how do those two things converge? Oh, well, that's the fun part. You know, it's sensor systems, uh, processor speed, and software. You know, they're they're all growing at a at a great rate and solving a lot of these problems. And and you don't have to go to space to have these same propagation delay problems that Josh is mentioning. I got into robotics because Isaac Asimov wrote some science fiction many years ago about robotics and that, that's what intrigued me, but it's a, a common theme in some of the robotics or uh, science fiction where a propagation delay in space causes an error and, a, and, and an accident. So, but imagine drones right here on earth. Some people think that all the drones are operated from the states. That's not true. Some drones are, but if they need uh, faster real-time control, they actually have to have a drone operator closer to where the, the plane is. Because as Josh says, it's hard to go much faster than the speed of light. So Josh and I are taking the same sensors, the same robots now, and uh, usually different software, but you know, trying to solve similar problems. That's the fun part. So do you guys use uh, different programming languages and styles or are those things the same and uh, and that sort of thing? Or are you guys operating kind of in different, you mentioned different softwares, Dan. Do you guys speak the same language when it comes to programming or are there differences there? I know Josh is using uh, the robot operating system. We haven't played with that one yet. That's got me intrigued though. So I'm, I'm waiting to see what he accomplishes with that. We might, we might uh, follow his lead. Yeah, I would say that that question is a, that's a really hard one to answer right now because of the rate of progression of technology. Mm. 10 or 20 years ago, when you're buying an industrial robot, you're going to program that thing in whatever that robot was designed to be programmed in. Now we're at a point where a lot of our robot controllers, just off the shelf, you have options on what you can do. And you can, you can send commands to that thing over Ethernet, which really opens it up to programming it however you want. Um, you know, in, in universities now, you're able to use MATLAB to drive some of these simple manipulators, right? And then we do a lot of stuff with compiled code. And uh, we have some custom machines that we've worked on that we just go all the way down to uh, like gate programming with FPGAs and stuff like that, depending on what your requirements are for speed. So I would say a lot of the, a lot of the robotic technology right now is agnostic to programming language. Interesting. Interesting. So Josh, as... As robots, I suppose, have become a little bit more accessible, as there is maybe more access to to robots and to, to parts and things like that, have you seen that kind of make its way to NASA where 
there are more maybe off the shelf capabilities for robotics and you're able to kind of play around it a little bit more and maybe do some more things given that robotics have maybe a higher level of accessibility than they were uh, in years past? Yeah, that is a huge change for us. Even in my, my, my career in NASA, relatively speaking, has not been that long. I think from the time I was an intern to now, uh, just about to hit 10 years, right? Mm -hmm. And that shift, in that 10 years, that shift has happened. It used to be that NASA has, has always been a leader in robotics, and a lot of that leading was done in hardware development. Uh, but now the industry is really, really leading change in, in hardware development and the manipulators, and you can just buy a pre-built actuator that turns this thing that you can link together and stuff like that, whereas to build whatever uh, manipulation device you're trying to build, whereas a couple decades ago, that was not the case. If you wanted a robot, you were starting at ground zero uh, for um, any of our applications that we're working on. You know, mm -hmm. We do a lot of interesting things with uh, even humanoid robots uh, in our group. Um, so a lot of that stuff is still, those are highly integrated systems and a lot of those will still be uh, custom developed for their specific application. But in terms of uh, a six, just a six off manipulator, you got, you have unlimited choices right now. The competition in industry is amazing at the moment, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Then that sounds really similar to some things I've heard you say in the past that, Hey, if you have a robot that does something great, you know, we'll, we'll use that robot and we'll do that thing that we need to do. But if we don't have it, then all right, let's sit down and figure out how we can make it. Right. So you, you guys, I, I suppose both have that in common, just that, you know, there are robots that are that are already ready to perform tasks. And then there are some jobs and some requests that come your way where you say, all right, we'll go, you know, we'll we'll go from scratch with this thing and, and figure this uh, figure this out and, and develop it how we need to. That's exactly the case. And, and Josh and I are actually solving these problems three different ways. You know, we can run an off the shelf robot with its off the shelf controller if the software happens to lend itself to the problem. But uh, then the middle ground is when the, the arm will do what we need to do, but the controller doesn't have the functionality that we need. And Josh and I are both streaming data directly to arms. And so, you know, we buy a brainless robot in effect, and, and then we have a sep completely separate control system. And we've done this a couple of times, and, and uh, it's when we need very specialized programming, but we're going to use the economy of having a, you know, a commodity robot. And then door number three is when neither the arm nor the brain exist. And that's when Josh and I build it from scratch. That's pretty fascinating. Do you see similarities in the way that you guys go about building things from scratch? Uh, I guess, I guess I'm curious about that, you know, is, are, are there similarities there or are there differences depending on, uh, I guess, Josh, you're looking more at, at space applications and Dan uh, industrial, but are, are there similarities there at all? Yeah, there's that. There's definitely similarities uh, between the two. You know, the things that'll be different a lot of times are more environmental mm -hmm. or kind of kind of like packaging. You know, um, when you're when you're trying to develop a really highly integrated humanoid robot that you're hoping to have walk around or, or send into a disaster zone, your physical kind of requirements are driven by that activity. Right. Yeah, you know, pretty wildly. Like, well, I think one of the the biggest differences between your world and my world is gravity. I've got to work with this stuff called gravity and it's 32 feet per second square and it's pretty constant. And so a lot of the times when we have to design and build a robot, it's because the loads exceed that of any commercially available robot. And so, you know, that's a gravity problem again. 
and you're up in space and you don't have to fool with gravity. So that's yeah, uh, we have uh, we've different. also got your power in space essentially comes from the sun. So we are uh, massively power limited, mm. right? So, but we don't have to deal with gravity. So we usually have very slow robots in space, which is good for a number of reasons because you don't want something too fast that it's going to be difficult to control. But the flip side to that is that these robots don't work in 1G at all. So you cannot test that machine in its real environment on the Earth. You know what I mean? And we have some systems to try to mitigate that, but it's hard to get a uh, full simulation, one-to-one kind of simulation of that robot. That's interesting. That's it. So you have to test it in a zero-gravity type situation? And like, do you, do you find that that's often reliable to give you a good idea of what it's going to be like once it's actually fully deployed in space? Yeah, you, you definitely do your best. And you have to realize where you're compromising those tests and, and things like that. But to space to qualify any of these things for space, the amount of overhead required in testing and, and uh, determining the life and reliability of those machines is significant. A lot of times that's more difficult than building the robot itself. Mm-hmm. It's getting it qualified, yeah. Interesting. That's that's really, really fascinating. Dan, do you have any examples of robots that you've had to build from scratch because either the request was crazy or you know just you needed to be able to do something couldn't find a, a robot that did it so uh, so you built it from scratch you have any examples of that uh blow up preventers uh, you know we had that failure back around 09 i think offshore blow up preventer failed and uh one of the problems was the way that it had been rebuilt and uh, in order to rebuild a blow up preventer you need a robot that's capable of working in a huge working envelope you know maybe uh, 15 feet by 15 feet by 15 feet and that's that's large envelope mm-hmm. large working envelope it's kind of envelope that, that josh does up in space but at the same time we're having to pick up rotate and manipulate a part that weighs over a hundred thousand pounds you got to understand that's over a truckload they, they won't even fit on a semi so we have to have a robot that can pick up a part that weighs a hundred thousand pounds and then have a robot large enough to reach and access all the different areas on that. And so after that, that offshore failure, we built, you know, I think 15 of these machines to ensure that this failure never happens again. That's a perfect example. There's simply nothing big enough that's commercially available to mm-hmm. handle these parts. And yet, obviously, it was a job that needed to be done. Josh, from your perspective at NASA, what, what have you had to build from scratch to, uh, to kind of fulfill your needs there? Yeah, we have to build all all kinds of crazy stuff, you know. The things that I've worked on personally are a lot smaller than what Dan's worked on. <laughs> <laughs> Our teams are large, so a lot of the things that we do have to deal with on these these vehicles are um, for manipulating things outside the space station that don't have that has robotic interfaces. So you need to actuate this thing purely with a robot, uh, and it needs to work forever in that harsh environment. So a lot of the things that we end up working on are are tools. Mm-hmm. The, that the robot will grasp and that tool does something specific uh, on the outside of the station. Another robot that I worked on, uh, I think that the robots that I work on primarily are ground systems uh, that we use for simulation, usually to qualify these other robot, these other space robots. Uh, one crazy one that I worked on is uh, a microgravity system um, that uses a big winch. We call it a hoist that mounts kind of on a gantry crane and it's got a massive fancy sensors on it uh, that sense your weight and you get hooked up into this machine and you get to fly around within that the volume of that machine and in, in zero gravity you know? wow and we do it's all set up to uh, work with 
you know, jeans and a t-shirt all the way up to a full spacesuit that's pressurized with water cooling and the whole nine yards on the, on that. That's crazy. But that, you know, you're not, you're not going to go to one of these companies and buy that thing off the shelf and have it shipped to you. Right. So. Yeah. Yeah. What about, uh, what about two armed robots? Have you guys done anything, uh, with, with that and, and kind of what's the purpose and what's the, uh, what's the, I guess, idea behind a, a two armed robot that NASA would deploy? The, primary example of that is the spdm mm-hmm. on the outside of the outside the space station also designed by the canadian space agency so that robot is a pair of arms they're kind of joined at their hip uh and that is hugely important um to maintaining the space station uh so if you imagine you're trying to swap some component on the outside of the space station you you have to get the robot there pull the old component out get a new component in bring the robot back uh, and there's a lot of handoffs. And if you're going to use one manipulator, you have to get there, pull the old one out, bring it back somewhere, store it, get the new part, go all the way back to your work site, plug it in, and then bring the robot back. Having two arms uh, that are joined at the hip allows one of those arms to have the, deal with the new stuff and one of those arms to deal with the old stuff, right? So you can kind of just carry everything out there that you need, pull the old one out, shove the new one in, and then bring the whole the whole thing back. So it allows us to do handoffs. Uh, between two manipulators at the same work site. Dan, I feel like I know you well enough to know that something like that would intrigue you on some level and you'd think, oh, what could I use something like that for? Is is that something that you've ever thought about or, or experimented with? Oh, yeah. And uh, it, it's something we do in the industry, but we do it a little bit differently. There was a, a two-armed robot in industry. Uh, they recently went bankrupt. So, you know, they didn't work very well. So our solution is a little bit different. We simply add more arms. So typically the tool is in the hand of one robot and then the part may be in another one. And so, you know, as a guy that sells robots for a living, I like selling two twice as much as one. So we'll, <laughs> we'll simply add more arms to the system. That's really, really interesting. That's, that's kind of fascinating. So uh, Josh, what has you excited about what you're working on at, at NASA right now? What's, what's particularly interesting or, or caught your eye um, or, or just something that you find really, really fun that you get to work on on a regular basis? That's a hard question because I really like my job. <laughs> hey, that's a <laughs> we good thing. We get to do thing. a lot of really interesting stuff uh, these days. Kind of the vision for for uh, setting up a permanent base on the on the moon is literally the stuff of science fiction these days. You know, it's been over fifty years since we've done anything like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, and the, and the way we're going to go about it this time is is largely different than how it happened back in the Apollo days. Uh, so we're you know having a permanent presence that's largely robotic. You know, that's incredible uh, to me. You know, there's a lot of movies made about stuff like that, uh, and we're finally getting to live it, you know. What's that what's that like for you? Like when you think about that, what do you what do you think about? What do you how do you feel? Uh it's slightly overwhelming. <laughs> <laughs> when you think of the scope, you know, the scope of the work that has to happen, but the uh, we have a lot of the the eight a lot of agency components working on it as well as commercial partners, you know, the whole kind of work structure shifted a lot more towards um, using these resources that exist in the industry, the mm-hmm. robotics industry and the space flight commercial industry now. That's interesting. That's that's really interesting. Now, I know one of the things that, that we, we've we talked about in the past that, that uh, you found really interesting was perception and just what is going on with cameras and just maybe the, 
the uh, accessibility of of the ability to you know just attach a camera um, and have that kind of perception now running into to programs and 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 that sort of thing and kind of make the robot smarter that way that's something that they're doing uh, I think you mentioned this at at a high school level right and so how has that changed kind of what you're able to do at NASA yeah it's opened up a just kind of a whole new area that didn't exist to, uh, at all mm-hmm. uh, 20 years ago you know on on that level you were talking to you know tens of thousands if not hundreds of thousands for a system like that but these days you go, I was talking, somebody gave me a call yesterday because they had some questions about it. And I told them to go buy a Raspberry Pi <laughs> and buy this camera, right? And the, the, their whole Amazon shopping cart was less than hundred bucks for all the equipment they need they needed to get started with this. You know what I mean? The software used to just be, you'd have to go to some kind of, some huge company, buy their software suite, uh, make sure it works on your hardware. Now you just go to GitHub and you have, you get your choice of library that you want to try. And you can try five different libraries. Right in an afternoon. So the accessibility of that technology has changed just what we're able to, to prototype and do. And mm-hmm. obviously we probably wouldn't fly something like that, but it really helps us with prototyping and realizing what is possible uh, with these kinds of systems. Now, you know, mm-hmm. we don't have to put all our eggs in, you know, try to design the system with this thing because we only can afford one of them. Now we get to try a hundred, 200 and we get, we can get interns working on it now. You don't need to be a PhD in the subject right. to get something functional out of it. Dan, how big of a change is that from from when you first started? Uh, you know, building robots in your garage. How, how much have things changed? Well, back before I was even in my garage, I had a real job, and uh, <laughs> I wanted to do machine vision back in the eighties. I was I was dying to do it, uh, and just like Josh said, it was immensely expensive, mm-hmm. and it was. Uh, feeble you know the the functionality was very low and it's it's only recently now with the fast processor speeds that we're that we're getting real use out of vision but but you know i could put it back to you what sense do you use the most every day it's not the sense of touch it's not your hearing it's your eyes and so it's obviously the sensor system of choice for human beings and robots that's really fascinating Josh, I feel like just having this conversation because you because you work at NASA, you're like, yeah, this is this is what we're doing, and it's it's cool. I, like I'm I'm excited about it, and I'm sitting over here like my mind blown because it's not something I interact with every day, and, and that sort of okay. thing. So, <laughs> what what sorts of things do you find that you you tell people who maybe don't work in the same industry as you that seems to be like the most mind blowing for them, or what things do you think of that that you're doing at NASA that you think like the average person that doesn't work in robotics would find like the most crazy? I mean, that's a hard question, actually. Uh, it, it seems like some people get really taken aback by some of the work we're doing. And then uh, somebody like Dan is like, oh, we, were, we were doing that 15 years ago. <laughs> 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 I think a lot of our human systems that we're working on right now are, are pretty incredible. You know, mm-hmm. um, That microgravity simulator that I'm working on anytime, it's not an impressive machine to look at when it's not running. But if you see a person in it or you have the opportunity to be in it, that is like a, a literally another worldly experience. And we've, we've had, you know, we've had all kinds of people in it from astronauts to uh, athletes and celebrities and, and, and things like that. And mm-hmm. that's the thing that gets people turned up, turned, you know, turned up to 11. Uh, yeah. You know, the most quickly, um, one thing for me uh, that blew my mind when I first uh, got to JSC 
when I was an intern is going into our Saturn V building and looking at the scale of this rocket that took three people uh, to the moon. You know what I mean? It traveled round trip. Well, the rocket itself didn't travel that far, but the space capsule is a round trip of 400,000 miles. Um, and then you, you look at it for a while, you know, you think about it. Maybe you go back a few months later and you look at it again with uh, kind of a different set of eyes and you realize the whole thing is fuel. All of it is fuel. Like 85% by mass of this vehicle is fuel. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and going to space is difficult. That's the, you know, that's, it just takes that much energy to get, you know, this is the, you know, the rocket is however many meters long. The, the spaceship that holds the people is a tenth of that or less. That's wild. That's wild. Dan, from from your perspective, when you when you talk to Josh about what he's doing, what do you find interesting? What what intrigues you these days? Because I know you're you're a curious guy. You like to learn more about what other people are doing and that sort of thing. But on some level, you you have a lot of knowledge in the industry, and there will be times where you tell Josh, "We were doing that 15 years ago," like you mentioned. So, what what's interesting about what Josh is doing, and maybe what are some of the things that uh, NASA is just now able to do for one reason or another that you've been doing for a while? Well, I like to pick on Josh largely to stimulate conversation because we're solving similar problems in very different ways. So, mm. you know, by provoking provoking him, I can get him to talk a little bit more. And it's it's kind of ironic, you know, I, I, I badmouth the uh, human operated devices, but that's something that really intrigues me is uh, haptics. Haptics is force feedback. So uh, it's something that we're trying to integrate into our robots because at some level, the human has to teach the robot what to do. And so when you're moving that joystick, wouldn't it be nice if you could sense what the robot's feeling, you know, if you're going to be applying a load to something. So if that, if that joystick fed back to you a proportion of that load, maybe it's 1% if we're working on a 100,000 pound part, or maybe it's 200% if it's a small part and you want to actually amplify the sense of feeling. So uh, haptic feedback is something I'm wanting to work on more and more we're having trouble getting industry to accept the kind of stuff that josh does for a living so that's why i think this cross-pollination is extremely useful that's really interesting i'm yeah i'm i'm incredibly curious just to see what you know how you guys work together what you guys work on and and the the crossover there i think has been uh, probably my favorite part of this conversation but i do want to ask who's the better race car driver well let's say josh last year did win the texas series and uh i didn't but what no I comment. like to remind Josh of is <laughs> a good instructor is defined by, by the fact that their student exceeds their skill. Josh, how do you feel about that? I concur. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, uh, so in a uh, in a what have you done for me lately type of uh, scenario, Josh is uh, Josh is the more recent champion, but. Uh, but Dan being the uh, the consummate uh, coach professional, maybe the Phil Jackson of race car driving coaches, you know, creates champions. So, uh, so okay, maybe maybe we say uh, this one's a wash. Well, I can tell you right now, Josh is cheating. He's using technology to go faster. So what he's done, he's got sensor systems and feedback and data logging. And so actually uh, the teacher- Yeah, I don't, I don't know what these other guys are doing. I just told you it costs a hundred dollars to buy everything you need on Amazon. <laughs> Nobody else does it. <laughs> so actually, I need to adopt Josh's state-of-the-art data collection system if I'm going to go as fast as he is. So wait, would you? The would car you... will tell you what it, what it wants. You just have to figure out a way to 
gather that data and then interpret it. So would you say you've, <laughs> you've taken a lot of the, some of the things that you learn and do at NASA and applied it to race cars? Uh, I think I take a lot of the stuff that I learned and do at race cars and applied it to NASA. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's probably a good way to make sure that you always enjoy your job. Yeah. Yeah. It is a, uh, yeah. I am never upset to go to work, even on, even on a bad day. It's still, still a great day there. Absolutely. So what have things looked like during uh, COVID-19? Have you been able to keep working at the same kind of pace and rate, or have things kind of changed and shifted because of uh, restrictions and coronavirus type things? I mean, yeah, obviously the schedules are getting shifted all around, but uh, I think a lot of people are feeling this, not only at NASA, but just around the, around the, the world right now uh, going on these telework things is you're on telecons all day. It seems like <laughs> <laughs> somehow you ended up being more busy than when you were at work, you know, I feel uh, that. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think everybody's feeling it. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, it's getting to a point now where I think people are starting to acknowledge, acknowledge that. And I think we're going to, this is going to be the year of the staycation <laughs> where people are just going to take a bunch of time off to not to stay, still stay, stay home or do whatever they're going to do. Uh, and just not turn on their laptop. <laughs> Does not sound bad to me. Does not sound yeah, bad. Yeah. No. I was going to say, otherwise, yeah, we're still able to remain productive, luckily. Mm -hmm. um, at least at JSC, I think it is an agency-wide kind of directive, but um, we we had a telework set up before uh, this happened, you know, and this is really a good test of it. But, you know, we, luckily we had all of the uh, equipment and stuff that we needed in place all, in, in place already for a number of years. Right. Yeah. Now, Dan is the, the brave one of the bunch, still going into the office, still being Dan Alford, robot master. Uh, we have a letter from the Undersecretary of Defense saying we're part of the critical infrastructure and it is our responsibility to remain in business. There you go. There and you go. Our audience can't see this, but I can see uh, Josh is at his home and in the background, he actually has an anti-gravity device. He's one of the engineers that is able to work from home and uh, still accomplish changeable things. Yeah, that's true. A lot of our guys were able to bring home, you know, bits and pieces of whatever thing they were working on to, to keep making hardware, hardware progress. That's awesome. Behind me, you just see old press passes for uh, sporting events that I mm -hmm. covered and that sort of thing. No, no <laughs> anti-gravity machines or anything like that. But, uh, but hey, this has been a, an absolute blast. Is there anything that I have missed that you guys want to want to chat about before we uh, before we sign off on this one? Let's throw a pitch in for all the kids that are interested in this. Yeah. Uh, if you are, you know, you don't, you know, it doesn't have to be like when I was a kid building strange things. You, you now have an outlet for this. And I encourage everyone to start out with best robotics because it's easy. It's cheap. Uh, you can build a robot in your kitchen in best robotics and you'll learn a lot, uh, you know, in, a, in addition to wiring and material science and, mechanical engineering, electrical engineering, you'll learn teamwork and you'll learn how to hit a deadline. And then after you, after you successfully build a best robot and compete, uh, I don't care if you win or don't, you know, I, you gotta, you gotta do it. Then, then you graduate to us first robotics and build that in the spring. That's really, really cool. Yeah. I, and I think that's, it's an incredible way of, of getting kids interested and involved in the industry. Uh, Josh, anything else that you want to, you want to cover today? Anything else you want to say, uh, if you want to add on to, to what Dan just said there about, uh, best robotics or anything like that? Yeah, I mean, I definitely concur, uh, with, with the best and first robotics, uh, programs like Dan was talking about too. 
those programs now extend even further than that to the middle school level. And I think there is even some stuff uh, for young, for younger students, even mm-hmm. um, all the way down to, to Lego league, you know, so pretty much anybody, any age can get into this stuff. And, and uh, I was mentoring the over Thanksgiving family friend, you know, asked me to talk to their first tech challenge team, which is a middle. I think you can do it in high school, but I was talking to a middle school team, which was a young team for them, for them. Uh, and one of the kids asked me what a PID controller was because they need to know that to make their their robot work. And so I spent the afternoon teaching a bunch of eighth graders about PID control, uh, which is something I didn't learn until, you know, I was 21 or something like that. I, I even built a successful one and they had theirs going and using the resources at hand uh, in a weekend over Thanksgiving break. You know what I mean? That's wild. Also, this is not only for uh, students. Uh, we also need mentors uh, doing this stuff too. That they're all, you know, equally as important to the whole program. Hmm. Um, and you don't really need, you don't really need a whole lot of robotics experience to just get in there and, and uh, as a mentor and, and uh, help these teams out. That's awesome. Indeed. That's a great and as a guy that hires engineers, if I'm looking at two resumes and they look pretty similar and one kid is an alumni from us first, I know three things. They're able to design on their own, they're able to program, and they're able to stick to a schedule. And that will typically cause my decision to go in favor of the kid that actually had built a robot when he was in high school, just like Josh did. Yeah, that's that's really, really cool. And, and I think a, uh, a great testament to uh, to the work that you guys are doing now. So uh, so that's, that's really exciting. I have no idea how you guys find time to build robots drive race cars and mentor high school students but uh it's pretty pretty incredible your schedules must be uh, quite busy but uh but it's been really really great getting a chance to talk to both of you about um the robotics industry and what each of you are doing how they converge how they're different and uh so this was a really fun conversation thank you for having us all right i'm gonna hit record this time and let's do that all again I'm just kidding. It's a bad joke. Okay. <laughs> <laughs>